My goddaughter Georgie just turned two years old, and her dad sent me a tweet the other day that said, um, having a two-year-old is like living with a little gnome from a fairy tale that you have to trick into doing things, because if you ask directly, it will curse you. I only have one memory of being two years old, but eyewitness accounts claim that this state of willful disobedience continued for me much past that age. Um, My mom tried the typical approach of punishments and rewards to alter my behavior, but my dad, a consummate mischief maker himself, took a different tack. My dad told me stories about Frank and Pete. The story goes, as he tells it, that I was not the firstborn after all. I had had two older brothers named Frank and Pete. But Frank and Pete had been very bad and had done the thing I was being told not to do at that precise moment. You know what happened to Frank and Pete when they didn't clean their room? I had to kill them, and that's why you don't have older brothers. (laughs) Every story was like this. It changed as to what I was doing wrong at the moment. Frank and Pete also told their babysitter no repeatedly. Dad got home, found out what they had done, and had to kill him. You may be horrified by this style of parenting. Um, To be clear, I never once took him seriously, though I think my more sensitive younger sister has a couple of scars from this one. (laughs) But it did the trick. I knew that Dad was making a joke at my expense, and this was a significant button for little Amber. By dad making up a long, elaborate story that ended in the grisly demise of my imaginary older brothers, he made me sufficiently mad enough that I would do the thing that was being asked just to get him to stop it. It quickly got to the point where Frank and Pete were code words in my family. All dad would have to say was, well, you remember what happened to Frank and Pete, and I would explain with anger before he could start in on the woeful tale. Now, I'd venture to guess that you don't have stories like this in your family, (laughs) but I bet you have stories where you know exactly where the story will go based on only a few words, right? Whether it's about what will happen at a family reunion or when an uncle has too much to drink, whatever it is, In the Bible, these are called type scenes. They're a type of story that you know immediately from just a couple of words. And we have a really good example of a type scene today in our gospel. The setting for today's story is at a well. Anyone from Jesus' time or anyone who from our time who is up to snuff on their Bible knows knows that wells are the clue for an immensely important type scene that plays out all over the Old Testament. Wells are where you meet the ladies. 
This type scene starts way back in Genesis with Abraham. Abraham and Sarah have re- received a promise from God. Old as they are, Abraham will become the father of many nations. Progeny and fertility are of the utmost concern in ancient times. There was no conception of an afterlife. You lived forever through your family line, not in some mystical, mystical great beyond. If your line ended, so did you. The promise to Abraham will need to be carried out through Isaac, their son. But the problem is, is that Isaac doesn't seem to be able to find a wife. So, Abraham sends his servant to go find one for Isaac. And where does his servant go? To a well. The well is the local watering hole where every night is singles night. The servant goes and finds Rebecca, who draws water not only for him, but for all his camels, too. Pre-arranged love is in the air, and Rebecca returns with the servant to marry Isaac. They have twin sons named Jacob and Esau. The promise lives on. But then Jacob grows old enough that it's time for him to marry, too, By the way, the birth of a youngest son is another type scene in the Bible that tells you this is the one who's going to carry on God's promise because the youngest son is always the favorite. Jacob sets off for a well, and sure enough, there's Rachel. There are all sorts of complications this time. There's a trickster marriage to Rachel's sister and seven extra years of labor before he finally gets to wed the woman at the well. But even all these twists and turns in the story are part of the fun. We know as soon as he goes to a well that it will end in marriage. And there's delight in the intrigue for how he will get there. And today... We have a single man meeting a woman by herself at a well. We know what this means. And maybe that helps us understand, in the course of the conversation, why Jesus suddenly pivots to the question of marriage, sort of out of the blue. Go call your husband, he instructs, and, says, and she says demurely, Well, I don't have one. And the story is exactly where it's supposed to be. The distant peal of wedding bells carries on the wind. But then it goes wrong. He says, you're right. You've had five husbands, and the man you're with now isn't your husband. Shocked, the woman says, oh, a prophet are we? So there's an argument between our two churches, and we can't agree. You tell me who's right. Jesus engages her, and she him, but it's not the kind with golden bands. Notice the way the story is actually being untold here. She's not being brought into the line of a chosen family. Her worth is not being measured by the number of camels she can water, which signifies some strength as to her ability to bear children and to continue the promise. They spar as equals, 
This foreign, unclean, heretical woman becomes a real person right before our eyes. It's extraordinary. This has changed. From the very old story about a man in need of a good woman to a story about a woman who is her own person before God, who sees Jesus in the full light of day and never breaks eye contact from shame. The bells we heard turn out to be ringing just for her. The arrow of Cupid leveled at her heart changes from eros to agape in mid-flight. I don't know how that resonates for you. But for me, it seems like what Jesus brings out is the real her. Everything else gets put aside, everything extraneous. Her usefulness, her theological expertise, or the role she plays in society. The real her. Not an easy thing to find in a world where a script has been written for you. And that world still our world, where human lives are given quantitative value and measured in comparison to others. But that Jesus is also still alive, quietly entering into our most determined stories, taking your hand as you rewrite it and saying, what if we changed this?